the General Services Administration is facing a crisis of confidence. The third scathing Inspector General report since 2016 has reinforced how headquarters can't make the Technology Transformation Service play by the government's rules. In his weekly reporter's notebook, Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller covers why this is leading agency chief information officers and other tech executives to question whether GSA as a whole can be trusted. Jason joins me now with the latest. And Jason, let's start with that IG report a couple of weeks ago about login.gov, of all things. Tom, this was the third report since 2016 from around the Technology Transformation Service and really their inability to play by the quote-unquote rules of the government. In this one, the most recent one back from earlier in March, basically what the IG found was over the last four years, the folks that ran login.gov were misleading the government, misleading their customers across the government about how they met certain NIST standards for identity proofing, something called IAL2. Now, long story short, Tom, is is the, the fact is that they couldn't meet is, is less of a big deal than they mis- misled the government and misled their customers for so long. And in fact, Tom, I have a, copies of, of five or six different interagency agreements between login.gov and agency customers, uh, the Agriculture Department, the Labor Department, SBA, OPM, the Railroad Retirement Board, VA, that all say the same thing. Hey, we meet this standard that NIST put out there for identity proofing, and in fact, they didn't. And, and that is causing a huge kind of wave of problems. Not that they didn't meet the specific standard, let me be clear about this, but because they were misled, in some cases, you know, people would contend lied over the last four years to their agency customers, Tom. And, and again, and that goes back to a long-standing problem of, of, for the Technology Transformation Service, TTS. Yeah, so you're reporting that this report is creating a crisis of confidence with GSA and the TTS as a whole? I've spoken to five federal technology executives, CIOs and other types. I've talked to three formers. I've talked to folks in industry. Across the board, everyone says... TTS has been a problem since the start. They continue to be a problem. This IG report just kind of adds another layer of that problem. And I think what's happening is this is also now being uh, shed into the G- General Services Administration more broadly and really re- reflecting badly on GSA, specifically Dave Shive, the CIO at GSA, who signed off on a lot of these authorizations that said they did indeed meet this IL2 or the identity proofing requirement under NIST. And now folks, again, CIOs and other types are saying, well, if they lied about this, what else did they potentially mislead us about? What else did they not, were not honest with us about? And, and again, Tom, I guess this creates a crisis in confidence because people for a long time have looked at GSA and said, I want to work with GSA. I want to bring my acquisition to them. I want to bring uh, lean on them for help. And now they're saying, maybe I don't want to do this. Maybe I, I'm, I'm concerned about what they're doing. What else is under the covers? Uh, what other transparency can they show me? And, and I, think, I think that's a big concern. Tom, I just want to refer back to, to something that happened in the mid-2000s. When you and I were working in a, in a previous job, we, we, we had this story about GSA parking money. This is the idea of you know an agency having year-end money, not be able to spend it. They give it to GSA, and GSA puts it on, quote-unquote, contract. And this was a big problem in the 2000s. And what I'm seeing and what I'm being told from many sources is this TTS problem, this login.gov problem, is as bad as that parking money problem was back in the mid-2000s when they, they saw their assisted acquisition service 
business dropped from about seven billion then to three billion dollars. Uh, so, so I think it's it's the same concern. There's there's a whole the trust has been frayed, is what I, a phrase someone told me. Well, that's tough for a fee for service agency on the one side, and it's also tough for agencies that might be using login.gov that they can't tell their constituents that the login process is secure, and that's kind of one of the heart of the big cybersecurity issues of the era, you might say. So what is GSA, if anything, doing now to try to get past this or repair the confidence? There's two things that GSA is trying to do. First, they, obviously, we have new leadership involved there. You have a new head of TTS, Ann Lewis. You have a Federal Acquisition Service, Sonny Hashmi. Neither of them were really involved in this scandalous event, right, this this misleading of agencies over the last four years. It happened really during the Trump administration. It happened during uh, the, the very beginnings of the of the Biden administration. In fact, GSA were the ones that brought this issue to the IG and asked for them to look into it back in February of 2022. But that still doesn't necessarily repair everything. They're also going on, a, and I'll call this Tom in quotes here, an apology tour of sorts. Uh, I've had sources tell me that the Sonny Hashmi and Ann Lewis went before the Technology Modernization Fund board just on March 20th to kind of talk about what they did wrong and, and how they're fixing it and, and how they're going forward to be better. If you remember, Tom, login.gov received the largest award under the TMF, $187 million in September 2021. And, and that award is really being called into question by a lot of people. Well, if they lied to the board and they lied to their customers, who else, did, you know, what else is going on here? And why didn't the board come a little harder at them and understand what the, all the issues were? So I think that was one step. I also have talked to folks around the CIO Council, the Chief Information Security Officers Council, and they've said that while they have not had a meeting yet, they do expect login.gov to come up during their meetings, uh, the upcoming meetings in April. And, and then finally, Tom, obviously GSA is doing some other things. They know they need to repair it. I talked to Claire Monterana, the federal CIO, and, and she says, well, I have full confidence in login.gov, but yes, uh, I think uh, TTS needs to rebuild their trust, the trust in login.gov. And even she said as a board there, what she calls fully interrogating the process that we went through for the investment, making sure we're looking back on those milestones and really holding people accountable. So there's a lot of kind of efforts going on to ensure that folks can't believe that they can trust login going forward. And one thing that's very important, Tom, as well to, to highlight, just because login did not meet this NIST standard, which is around identity proofing, it doesn't mean they were not secure. This is not a matter of insecurity or a cybersecurity problem. It's a matter of honesty and transparency, and I think that's really why it's causing this crisis in confidence. Let me ask you this. When you say that GSA lied to these agencies about it, could they have just simply mistakenly thought it was compliant within this standard, but it wasn't, and they somebody pointed it out to them, or did they know it was not compliant and nevertheless say it was? They knew it was not compliant and nevertheless said it was. Okay. Uh, they kept trying to get compliant, and they, uh, you know, there's there's Slack messages and other messages in the IG report that kind of admits to them that said, "Uh oh, we we're going to be in trouble." Uh, so, so I think uh, it, they could have come back and said, "Hey, we thought we could reach this this standard, we couldn't, and here's what we're doing instead." They could have done that a year into it, two years into it, but they never did. And I think that's the other point. They let, they let this go on for four years. Yeah, classic issue there. So this IG report also has Congress sniffing around, too. It, it absolutely does. And, Tom, there's a hearing coming up Wednesday, tomorrow, before the House Oversight and Accountability Subcommittee on Government Operations and, and, the, and the federal workforce. And this hearing is going to feature Sonny Hashmi, 
uh, Carol Ochoa from the GSA Inspector General's Office, and Jim St. Pierre from NIST. And the concern here, according to a spokesperson from the committee, says, you know, they want to really look at why did GSA leaders didn't exercise adequate oversight over TTS? And, Tom, that's a common question I hear from a lot of people across the government. Why can't you control the people at TTS. And a lot of CIOs are very frustrated that GSA can't do that. And then they're also looking at should login.gov remain a central component of the Biden administration's anti-fraud efforts? I think those are two fair questions about what's going on with login.gov. So I think that's one thing that's happening. I also know the Senate Homeland Security Governmental Affairs Committee has met with uh, GSA Administrator Robin Carnahan to ask about login.gov and hear what's going on there. An aide for Senator Gary Peters, the chairman of that committee, told me that they want to uh, improve the accountability and transparency of login.gov and, and rebuild some of that trust in the program. So, again, the Senate also is very focused on what's going on with GSA. But this won't be Robin Carnahan's bathtub with wine glasses in Las Vegas moment, will it? Tom, I don't think so because it has not come – there was no cybersecurity breach. If they would have found out that they promised they were doing identity vetting and something bad would have happened, you know, take it to the nth degree and this did not happen, but let's say it's a terrorist, some sort of terrorist attack or something like that, Tom, then I think that would be the downfall. But this is just a, and remember, Robin Carnahan also came in after this has been happening for, for two and a half, almost three years. So, she, you know, to hold her accountable. So did Martha Johnson. Exactly. Well, but you got to act quickly enough. And I think that's why this tags back to that parking of money in the 2000s. How will Robin Carnahan, who was a member of 18F, and that also came out as I talked to some other sources in government as a concern, how will she react to this? Will she you know, kind of have that top-down approach saying, we will fix this, we will get better, we will be more transparent, or will she leave it to Sonny Hashmi, who's quite capable, and Ann Lewis, who's fairly new to government? I think that's a big question that I think also wants to be answered by – people want answered by, by across the board. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporter's notebook now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a... um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field 
And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming 
after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort I, of the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast. 